This podcast is part of the Game and Entertainment Network. Visit tgenetwork.net to find the latest episodes from all our shows. You're listening to Contains Moderate Peril, an independent podcast about gaming, movies, and popular culture. Written and presented by Roger Edwards. Hello, and welcome to the Contains Moderate Peril podcast, episode number 177. I'm your host, Roger Edwards. Over the years, I've recorded hundreds of podcasts with friends and guests discussing a broad range of subjects. However, due to change in hosts and website moves over the years, a lot of this material is no longer available. So I thought it would be fun to take a trip down memory lane and revisit some of this material. So I've decided to make a themed compilation and on this occasion the subject matter is food and I would like to revisit the classic discussions that Brian and I had about bacon and eggs and fruit and vegetables. So here for your enjoyment is another chance to listen to some interesting and fun content and not in any way a cheap clip show to cover up the fact that the planned recording went to shit. on the next topic of conversation is wait for it bacon and eggs bacon is a source of mania in certain quarters but yep. i don't so much want to explore that angle I, I want to talk about bacon and eggs because i think for a lot of people they are a regular feature of their diet and like so many um staples shall we say although you could argue that maybe bacon might not necessarily should be a staple but like so many commonplace foods it's very much a buyer's market you get what you pay for and i recently have made some quite radical changes to my purchases of bacon and eggs because i've become increasingly aware of the fact that the most readily available um, brands tend to be of quite a low standard and it's mm. becoming possibly more noticeable. It didn't help that I saw an episode of How It's Made recently, that, um, that Canadian documentary show where they just show you how shit's made and they showed you mass-produced bacon. And... It wasn't an unhygienic process, but it wasn't particularly edifying, shall we say, when you can compare mass-produced bacon to bacon purchased from a traditional butcher or farm outlet, and effectively it's, it's dry-cured bacon that they've made themselves on their own mm -hmm. premises. So I've just felt the need to bring this subject up. But what I wanted to do for starters is, is, is highlight the fact that bacon is not just this black and white subject. If you go to Wikipedia, which I have done for the purpose of this podcast, you become very aware of the fact that bacon comes from multiple cuts of meat. 
and therefore in different geographical regions what what you consider bacon and what you are used to as bacon might be quite different from other people's for example in in the u.s um it's quite common for bacon to predominantly come from pork bellies as a result of which um you have bacon that has a greater degree of fat marbling in it um it's what in the uk we called streaky bacon we tend to favor what is known as back bacon which comes from the pig's loin area it tends to have a more oval piece of meat in it and have less fat content um it's interesting because i i enjoy both cuts of bacon and they do taste subtly different because Different parts of the of the of the bake of the the, the pig's carcass, and possibly different curing methods. But um, it's I had no idea, Brian, that there was just quite so many different varieties and cuts of bacon. Yeah, and and we actually refer to back bacon in the United States as Canadian bacon. Ah, that that is how it's known. Mm-hmm. Generally considered to be a healthier type of bacon, although I I would possibly dispute that but that would be the subject of another podcast i think i i think when you start well not us but when anyone else starts extolling the the, the health aspects of bacon you, you, you sort of immediately hamstrung by the fact that bacon is fundamentally cured in salt and an excess of salt is not necessarily a good thing yeah it, it's the salts which for me is a problem um, cause I'm, I'm on a salt restricted diet, but it's also, they use, and this might be tied in with the salts, they use, um, what sodium nitrate or sodium nitrite or one of those things mm-hmm. to cure it. So you get these, these nitrates or nitrites or whatever. And, and those are supposedly very, very bad for you. That is not a good thing to be putting in your body. And it is part and parcel of eating bacon from my understanding i could be completely wrong but that's that's my understanding is that's the worst part the the fat part of it turns out fat probably isn't as bad as we were led to believe when we grew up although we could argue that um i think the fat gives it all the flavor personally it's as you say it's what and they put sugar have have you seen how much sugar goes in bacon the package stuff yes indeed a lot Um... There is quite a lot of um, sweetening going on. The, the, the other thing that concerns me is if you favour smoked bacon, it is time-consuming and costly to smoke in a traditional way, <laughs> i.e. Yeah. exposing the bacon to sort of um, um, effectively embers, charcoal, stuff like that, um, different types of wood slowly burnt. So mainly smoked bacon that you get, in supermarkets at the budget end has just effectively been injected with smoke flavoring usually in in um in a water solution that in itself raises some issues some people have questioned is the flavoring 100 percent okay for you my biggest concern is the fact that you then have bacon that has an incredibly high water content you get sold bacon by weight you're effectively buying what 30 percent water that's not a good deal yeah and, and, and you know again that's probably a subject of a whole other uh segment but here in the united states prepackaged meats are kind of a thing like walmart now when you buy a steak it comes in a you know sealed thing 
and they if you look at the label they they do they inject a huge percentage of water into it and i think the only reason is to make it way more so that they make more money because i don't think water's good for steak i don't know maybe i could be completely wrong um, the presentation to make it look plump and moist and inviting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure there are yeah. um, justifiable. Yeah, maybe not just, my but understanding is, reasons, yeah, yeah, that that's what those nitrates and whatever nitrate. Well, I don't know what they're called, but one of the things that those do with pork is they keep the pork a a reddish looking color. Yes, longer. Yes, and when people buy pork, you want it to look reddish i guess because we we as consumers say oh well, that's not brown so it must be fresh because yes. it's it's red or whether that's true or not i don't know um so just, just there's a whole lot of fascinating uh kind of psychology maybe behind what they do and uh but here's what i want to know before we get too far into this you eat bacon correct yes i do how cooked do you like your bacon um crispy it depends on my mood okay i like it very crispy on occasions i like it on other occasions when it is is still you know just rarely done i tend to favor grilling rather than oven Mm -hmm. baking or frying in a pan I, I, i like to grill streaky bacon american style bacon by its nature i like it to be quite crispy I think it it lends itself to that. I also use bacon a lot as an enhancement to other meals. I I will regularly cut bacon into small pieces and and toss it into other meals as well as having bacon sandwiches or having a plate of bacon and and eggs. I, I eat a lot of contemporary cuisine, but I also come from a very traditional British household. I eat offal. I eat kidneys. Mm hmm. I like kidneys that have been sautéed, and then to garnish them, you wrap them in bacon and cook them a little further. Oh, that sounds really good. It is nice, and you can make some nice thick brown gravy to go with that. can be very pleasant. But what I've noticed recently is bacon that is increasingly bland in flavour, mm-hmm. um, fibrous, and particularly with the water coming out of the cooking you 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 get meat that cooks with watermarks on it it doesn't make any difference to it but it's aesthetically unpleasing and as a result of which i've started experimenting and i've been reacquainted with the very old adage you get exactly what you pay for Mm -hmm. in the uk a packet of bacon sold on weight usually got something like about eight or ten rashers in it you can go as low as a pound 50 sometimes a pound wow it is not quality bacon it's sort of like the bits they found on the floor or or the bit that's coming to the end of the actual belly that they were slicing or the back that they were slicing etc if if i spend three to four pounds on a packet of bacon with a fixed weight in it it tends to be better quality most supermarkets and i'm sure this is the same for us in europe you have products that fall into budget range mainstream high-end 
or uber high-end i've noticed that quite a lot of supermarkets tend to do high-end brands or even their own brand and they've gone for the high end and they've got bacon sourced by a particular outlet a particular farm or it's cooked and cured in a certain fashion you're looking at paying two times or even three times as much but you get bacon with very little water in it and noticeably improved and enhanced flavoring and you just think yeah I'm prepared to pay that because that's what I eat it for. I'm not just eating it for the hell of it. I'm eating it because I enjoy it and I want it to be a pleasurable experience. Yeah, I see. I prefer um, what what we call here thick cut bacon, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know how much thicker it is than normal bacon, but it doesn't uh, uh, curl up as much, and you know. It definitely renders more more fat out when you cook it, but I, I just find it, I don't know, meatier for my taste. I guess instead of having four slices of bacon, I can have two thick cut. Mm-hmm. And, and just for me, it's easier for whatever reason. Um, so I prefer that. And, and so it's harder to find that. Now, I just bought prepackaged bacon today. A pound of it, I think it was $5. And it was just the normal, you know, whatever. We have a few standard brands here. Um, but I think I'm going to look in, in the meat department next time and see what they have, because I suspect for $5 a pound or maybe a little bit more, I bet I could get, as you're saying, better bacon or hopefully at least processed better in some way. I'm not sure. Maybe it all comes from the same place. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things it's worth looking out for because we live now very much in a world of pre-packaged meats like you say you get the the styrofoam tray with a bit of um towel and with the steak on it that looks wonderful in the packaging but you can't get at it in any way it's 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 literally hermetically sealed and so much of the meat these days i find is is sort of mummified in that way where i actually like to go into a traditional butcher's and i come from a generation where i used to go into the butchers with my parents so i am quite au fait with cuts of meat and the actual butcher saying you know how much would you like where from and you can actually say could you take it from that particular side of beef or that side of bacon rather and with bacon it's not so commonplace now but if you go into some of the bigger supermarkets they will sometimes still have the whole side of bacon put it on the slicer and you can actually stipulate how thick or thin you want it and you can literally just have it presented to you in the way that you find most pleasing both aesthetically and and personal taste wise that is like the bacon dream right there my friend oh my i would love that see now my experience is normally buying the pre-packaged because that's just i guess what i'm used to and have have been used to all my life and and so the pre-packaged stuff you know it's basically this plastic thing and then they have this little window on the back you familiar with this Mm mm-hmm that, that so you can see a representative slice because you don't want to get one that's all fat. You want to get, you know, we we do use the belly, so it's usually you know there's the meaty part and the fatty part. You don't want too much of the fatty part, or at least that's how I was raised. Um, but I've noticed. Have you ever noticed a game that they play that every once in a while you buy it because it's got this beautiful slice showing through the window? And then you get it home and they had put that one slice right there yes. in the window, and yes. then everything behind it is some crap from the ass end of the pig or something yeah. that nobody else wanted. And it's just like screw you. So maybe I'd be better off with a butcher that knew what they were doing. 
but then that is it's, it's quite difficult it's not well difficult it's not so commonplace these days is it to to be able to actually get your hands on a butcher yeah, well, I, even the butcher at my grocery store, the butcher's department, mostly sells prepackaged stuff. Like I can buy what we call a pork butt or a pork shoulder, okay, mm-hmm. which is a, something you roast and yep. you make pu- pulled pork is what I do. I, I do it in a slow cooker for eight hours and it just falls apart. It's wonderful. But I buy it in this big, it's a shrink wrap thing. And it oftentimes has the skin still on one side, and then I can have them cut that into smaller portions. So that would be like seven or eight pounds. It won't even fit in my slow cooker. And I have them cut it in half and take the skin off and do a little prep. But it used to be back when I was growing up and, and even as a younger adult, they had actual butchers at all the grocery stores here, and they had, you know, the the carcasses, and they would do all the stuff. But that's all it's all done somewhere else now, and it's shipped in. So it's quite, it's almost like beef manu- or in pork manufacturing rather than, you know, celebrating the animal that you're eating from. It's, it's almost like that, you know, they just, everything's wrapped. Even all the vegetables here are wrapped. I don't know if it's like that where you, like, not yes. all of them, but like Trader Joe's, you go to Trader Joe's and I think almost everything that they sell, all the vegetables, with very few exceptions, are shrink wrapped in a little thing and a pre weighed and all that kind of stuff. Well, this again is a, a tangent that is a podcast exactly. in itself. Yes. I, this particularly with meat, it's it's a, a something that I think consumers are willfully participating in. We know where meat comes from. It comes from animals. We see them in farms, but we really don't want to dwell too much on what happens when they get slaughtered at the abattoir and. It's it's interesting in the space of my lifetime, we've gone in the UK from there being a butcher on every street corner with carcasses hanging up and sawdust on the floor and, and blood and, and, and meat cleavers. It's now been very sanitized and you, and you are presented with this wonderful piece of meat, but you really don't have to think and dwell on where it's come from. You know, when you open it, it's not as if it's sitting in a pool of blood. No. It, it's it's all part of, we are willfully participating in a process where we are trying to distance ourselves from the, un, the perceived unpleasantness of the meatpacking industry because we like to see ourselves as modern caring people and we care about animals but um but but meat is delicious so we eat it but <laughs> no, you, you know not looking as it were when, when when you kill a cow you don't stick your knife into it and cut a couple times and a t-bone falls off <laughs> yeah. i mean that that you know it's actually sliced the carcasses is, is processed in a very particular way yep. and to get that cut you have to do particular things and it only comes from this certain area and you can only get so much out of it um we had a farm my, my parents had a farm that i i helped them with um you know about 20 years ago and there was a massive, massive difference in the taste of the cows and the pigs that we raised versus what we were buying in the store to the point where we couldn't eat stuff from the store. It did not taste any. I mean, it just it literally had no taste in comparison. Um, also, just as a side note, my, my stepdad, back when he was growing up as a young man, worked at a... Um, 
slaughterhouse. And to this day, he will not eat hot dogs and things like that. So what what does that tell you about uh, how those are made? Yep. The phrase mechanically reclaimed meat. But we won't go there. Like like, little turkey bacon we could talk about. You've raised the point of taste. Yes. That is one of the reasons why I have now shifted my purchase of eggs. Okay. I've literally moved away from the most commonest and most economic eggs that are available because they just come from mass-produced installations where the, the, the chickens are just kept cheek by jowl in, in steel sheds, fed, and, well, the, just the sheer factory conditions of that process, to me, has a knock-on effect on the flavour of the egg. You get an egg with a very yeah. pale, indifferent yolk, where if you then go and buy some eggs that have come from free-range chickens that have been fed on purely organic produce, well, it's there as plain as the nose on my face in an egg that has a beautiful yellow, sometimes even orangey yolk, yep. and just so much flavor. I think it was about three years ago, I went to a farmer's market, and I bought a dozen eggs from a local farmer who had, as you said, you know, they all got to run around and eat whatever they wanted. And um, it was $5.25 for a dozen eggs at the time. Um, at that time, I could buy a dozen eggs at the grocery store and, and was commonly doing it for about a dollar nineteen. So it was literally like four times as much. But I have to tell you, I did have the orange yolks. And that was some of the best tasting eggs I have ever had in my life. But it was just horrifically expensive for something that I eat a lot of. It, it just. You know, now a dozen eggs is almost $5 in the store because we're having a chicken shortage, a a flu situation where they've had to destroy a bunch of the egg-laying hens. So eggs eggs have spiked up in price in the past few months, and I'm paying almost $4 a dozen for just the crap eggs. So I might as well buy the good ones for five, right? Yeah. But no, you're exactly right. And the other thing I've noticed, and I don't know what kind of eggs you buy. I like the the jumbo eggs, the big, they, they, they do them by size, okay? And so I prefer the bigger eggs for whatever reason. And I've noticed that when I get them at the stores here, just the, the mass-produced eggs, let's call them, and I get the jumbo ones in particular, the shells are extremely thin and fragile. Mm-hmm. And I... I'm starting to wonder if that isn't because, you know, maybe they, I think eggs are calcium. Maybe the chickens don't have enough calcium to produce the big thing. The smaller eggs seem better, but the big eggs are just like, I have them break all the time. It's very hard to find a, an unbroken dozen in a store. And, and I just, I wonder about that. Whereas, like I said, the, the dozen eggs I bought, which were big eggs um, at the farmer's market, were the shells were much thicker. So you could tell that the, I believe the chickens were just overall taken care of better. I felt better about eating the eggs for some reason. That does have a knock-on effect. You know, if you feel morally right with yourself about the conditions of the actual product that you're eating, that does have a tangible impact, I think. With regard to prices, you can go for half a dozen eggs in the UK. You can pick them up for about £1.50 or so. If you start spending 2 to £3, maybe a little bit more for half a dozen eggs, you then start getting into 
better quality ones. I've also noticed now that quite a lot of the high-end eggs are segregated according to the breed of chicken. Ah. Different breeds of chickens producing slightly darker yolks or different coloured shells, etc. And this has allegedly a knock-on effect on the actual um, flavour. Also, different species of eggs, say duck eggs, goose eggs. Ooh, yeah. Which can be substantially larger and have more robust flavours. Some would say stronger flavours might not necessarily be for everyone. Uh, I still think that things like quail's eggs are the prerogative of you know slightly more niche and exclusive markets. I can't see quail's eggs and pheasant eggs being particularly commonplace yet, but certainly duck eggs and goose eggs, with the added caveat that they might increase in popularity because more people in the UK now are actually keeping poultry. Seems to be a little bit of a step back, but people are keeping poultry. It's becoming more commonplace. Yeah, we we actually have, there's been a trend for the past over decade here in America, even probably longer, but that's when I became aware of it, of people keeping chickens even in the city now. And and a lot of the cities have rewritten their ordinances to allow that, even though most cities that I've lived in the United States don't allow like a, a barnyard animal, you know, on the property. If, mm-hmm. Even if you own the property, that's just something that they, but chickens are okay in a lot of places now because people are keeping them. Now here's the scam here is, I don't really want to call it a scam, but it, it's, it's kind of, kind of shady. I think the average supermarket egg that you buy here is, is a white egg. Okay. And you can buy the brown eggs here but they cost more. It's the same. <laughs> there's, I don't think there's any nutritional or any difference at all other than one has a brown shell and one has a white shell, but they charge more for the brown ones because those are the brown. I mean, literally they're marketed as the, you know, blah, blah, brown farm eggs. I would hazard a guess that that probably is a little bit of just enterprising marketing, because as far yeah. as I'm aware, um, eggshell color is largely a cosmetic issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's like I said, it's kind of scammy, but I think people who are concerned with organic type things and, you know, buying the the better uh, cuts of meat and, and that type of stuff, which which I think is fine. And I'm glad that people are thinking about it. They they see the brown eggs and for some reason associate those as those chickens have been raised better when, when it's not really necessarily the case. The other weird thing about America is all of our eggs are washed at the producer. So we have to keep them refrigerated. And from I know from talking to you, you don't refrigerate your eggs, do you? No, I do not. I've been told that that's not necessarily a good thing. But there again... If they haven't been washed as part of the production process in the UK, then it no longer becomes an imperative, does it? Well, yeah. So so I looked into this because and this is probably going back a couple of years ago. We were just chit-chatting once talking about eggs for some reason. And I was like, I was astounded that they would sell eggs in, in your country and probably the whole rest of the world that people don't refrigerate. And then I found out that by washing the eggs here to make them look so pure and nice for the consumer it actually washes off this this natural oily coating that eggs have okay and that would allow the the air to penetrate into it cuz eggs are porous believe it or not yep and so because we're doing that it 
forces us to refrigerate them so that they don't go bad. If I took the eggs I just bought today, I just bought a dozen eggs today, and I coated them in olive oil and put them out on the counter, my understanding is I could keep those out for six months or longer perfectly fine as long as the but i had to add that coating back on i just think that's kind of fascinating because yes. that's the barrier yes that's um, i believe technical term that's the cuticle that that, I, that sort of um sort of waxy coating on the actual exterior of the shell and obviously the washing process in the u.s impedes that thus yes. there is the risk of without refrigeration salmonella Curiously enough, chickens in the UK are immunised against salmonella. Hence, the, the we don't wash the eggs. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure ours are too, and probably everything else. You know, you know how the, what they do here. But I um, I don't know. I just I, I thought that was odd. I actually wouldn't mind raising my own chickens if I could now, because I think I would prefer to have the eggs the way they came from the chicken, <laughs> not the ones that have been power washed and and stuck in this cardboard container that I buy that I have to use within a week and a half or throw them out because I might die. Mm -hmm. Which I know I'm going, you know, being a little exaggerating, but kind of (laughs) not. It's a little scary when you have old eggs in America because I, you know, who wants to die from eating eggs? Well, quite. I wanted to raise this point, as I said at the beginning, purely because eggs and bacon are very, very commonplace breakfast items or meal items and like so many of the foods that we enjoy there's there's always scope for there to be a diverse spectrum of quality shall we say and Mm -hmm. um, I, i do appreciate the fact that i am fortunate enough to be in a position where i can make a decision in which i can spend twice the amount of money on the egg and still find that tolerable within my weekly budget i do find it a little bit concerning that if you've got a big family and your budget doesn't stretch so far then you might find yourself pushed towards certain products and as a result of which you're not really enjoying the same quality as everyone else and that is a little bit concerning because i do worry about to multiple tier dietary systems evolving in civilized countries it it shouldn't really be the case but that's just me being a a concerned citizen i suppose you are a concerned citizen i'm very (laughs) concerned about you by the way well we need to wrap this up because we can't talk about bacon and eggs all the time although i will say to you brian have you ever tried a pickled egg i actually have not they lend themselves to pickling quite well Obviously, the pickling process does make them um, a little bit more robust in texture, shall we say, and not everyone enjoys that. Some people do say, well, they do become a little bit um, bit rubbery in texture, but I, 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 I'm very fond of a pickled egg, particularly um, when people have done exotic things like added beetroot to the vinegar, so the egg, effectively, the white of the egg goes pink. See, now I have seen, like, big jars of pickled eggs, especially when I was overseas. Um, in various places. Now, my question to you is, and I, I, I'll do the research later, because uh, now I, I'm I'm kind of intrigued and I need a new project. Do you hard boil them first, or are they cooked as a result of the pickling? You boil them first. You boil okay. them to okay. solidify them, and then the pickling process res- um, obviously preserves, and then 
enhances it the flavor. It in yeah. and actually gets into the egg part. I got it. Yes. Okay. That makes yes. that makes sense. I just I thought maybe somehow the chemical, you know, you never know. Scotch the, eggs, never tried those. Ah, uh, well, you see, uh, I could go <laughs> I could go on for hours about oh, the scotch Oh, the best eggs. bacon I had was on my trip to uh, to the UK for my sister's wedding a couple years ago, and we stayed at this bed and breakfast, and it was the old manor house of the area, um, and she, the woman cooked a, you know, we wanted the traditional English breakfast is what we asked for, and it was butcher's bacon. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, that was so good. That whole meal was so good. What a way to start your day, I'll tell you what. Indeed. Indeed. Recently, we discussed the topic of bacon and eggs. Specifically bacon. But there was quite a lot of eggs there as well in a recent podcast. Well, contrary to what Brian and I thought, this has actually been very well received. There was a lot of listener feedback and the numbers for that show were pretty good. So we're of the mind now that there is no prejudice among our audience when it comes to food and culinary based discussions. So we will be returning to that subject today where we're going to talk about fruit and vegetable. Now that I've given everyone a few seconds for that to sink in. To sink in. Yeah. yeah, it's a big subject. We're just going to touch upon it in a very sort of impromptu fashion. Fruit and vegetables. Ah, where to begin? I'm a child of the 70s. My parents were a slightly more mature couple when they got married and had children. And therefore, they have a very traditional outlook on meals, very much one governed by the mindset of the country and the generation that they were raised in. So meals usually consisted of meat and two veg mm -hmm. or fish and two veg, a very traditional approach. Here is a cut of meat that's been cooked. Usually the meat or the fish was unadulterated. There wouldn't be a sauce or anything like that. It wouldn't be a prepared meal with the meat chopped up and put into something. Nine times out of ten, it was meat, pork chops, yep. potatoes, two vegetables. It got a little bit more adventurous as things went along, but by and large, that was how we had meals. Therefore, my exposure to vegetables initially consisted of traditional root crops that you then cut up and boiled. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that as a way of cooking a vegetable in theory. It's not particularly inspiring. And if you followed the prevailing mindset of the UK in the 70s, which was boil the fuck out <laughs> of any vegetable, you were then presented with something that had no texture and very little flavor. And what you were left with was just genuinely an uninspiring, unpleasurable experience. Therefore, my relationship with vegetables was pretty much soured from the get-go. And it also totally excluded certain international vegetables, which are now commonplace on your dinner table, because at the time that was just foreign and not, not British and well, you, you, only only French people eat those, and we all know what their iniquities are. Not my words, my father's mindset. He is a product of the age group and the generation that he comes from. 
So there you go, Brian. That was my relationship with vegetables. And as a result of which, I have struggled over the years to reconcile and improve that relationship. What about yourself? I, I think our family was very similar growing up. It, it was usually like a meat and potatoes and a veg, as you would call it. We won't call it veggies, but I'll go with it because it's easier to say. So what, what I was going to add to yours is mine was whatever vegetables could come in a can or be frozen. Obviously, my memory's fuzzy after all these years on Earth. But I, I remember we had broccoli, which may have been frozen. It could have been fresh. But like green beans, always in a can. Corn, always in a can or frozen. Um, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Peas was always frozen, I think. Um, and so I think... For the most part, I went to the grocery store with my mom every week, but we didn't spend a lot of time in the produce area. We spent more time in the rest of the store because she was a single mother raising three boys. Mm -hmm. And three boys who were growing eat a lot of food. And that's, you know, it had to be a tough thing for her to do. So she did the best she could. That's interesting that I can remember. This is going to be a weird anecdote, so brace yourself. I can remember going to a chain of supermarkets that were very popular in the 70s and 80s in the UK called Bee Jams. They specialized in frozen produce because this was the decade when freezers really did start playing a, an increasingly important role in the UK home. Mm -hmm. People getting access to bigger freezers and the, the producers of food were getting more adventurous. So you go to B Jams on a Saturday shop, which was always done by my dad. My mother would give him a list. We'd go to the butchers, bakers, go to a supermarket, and then go to B Jams to get the frozen stuff. Mm. And I can remember get him getting blocks of frozen spinach. Oh. Now, this spinach, I... Maybe there was a grading quality, and that's why it was chosen to be frozen, as it were. But effectively, it would be sold to you in blocks. You'd, you know, it'd be nicely packaged, but once you open the package, there would be several pound blocks of frozen spinach that were literally like bricks. Mm -hmm. And you would just add a bit of water, put them in a saucepan, and bring it to a boil. Defrost it, heat it up, strain it. You've got spinach but to be honest as i said it was very much like i like the vegetables i described earlier you ended up with this like this green slurry because these pound blocks were really large and not everyone wanted to eat that quantity of spinach my father used to break them he used to break them with a wooden baton slash truncheon <laughs> that he inherited from his father my grandfather who spent time served in burma and i believe that was the truncheon of a burmese military policeman wow and therefore i would go into the kitchen on a sunday my mother would be preparing vegetables and my father would be belaboring a block of frozen spinach with a wooden truncheon that belonged to a military policeman and people say why don't you like vegetables roger didn't help once I found a dead earwig in that spinach as well. Ooh, that's not good. Yeah. I mean, it was it was sterile. I mean, it had been boiled for a couple of hours, so it was incredibly sterile, but it was a dead earwig. Yeah, we, we tended to get a, you know, my mom was at one point working three jobs, 
while we, you know, all the kids, we would go to school. And so we had a lot of like, uh, I don't know if you have it over there, chunky soup. You know, it's, it's yes. a canned soup that you don't add water to. It's already pre-mixed. And yeah. basically I could take a can of chunky soup and put it on the stove myself and heat it up. And that was my meal. Like if for, not for dinner, but for like, say a lunch. Right. And so we, we tended to have that kind of food because it took the stress off of her because she didn't have a lot of time to prepare things. Now for dinner, she would always, if she was home, make something like we had a lot of like tuna casseroles or spaghetti, you know, things like that. Like you know, get a pound of uh, pound of ground meat and brown it up and throw in a big thing of spaghetti sauce and boil up a bunch of noodles and she was done, you know? Yeah. So that, that's kind of how I was raised eating, um, you know, up through my high school years and then um, changed dramatically, which I'm sure we'll talk about as I became an adult. There you go. This is the next stage, isn't it? The transition period. As soon as I hit a certain age group, started having a job, still living at home, but contributing to the family household. And I was now an adult. I just literally mutinied. It's like, no, don't bother putting that on my plate. It's not eating it. So there was this period of my life when I was an adult, but still quite a young adult, where I, I'm, a, I'm amazed I didn't get scurvy. Because <laughs> there was just literally no vegetables in my diet i'd eat potatoes which is a vegetable but it's it's let's face it nine times out of ten potatoes are prepared in an incredibly unhealthy fashion mm -hmm. and it's what we add to them so all material benefits therein were destroyed i probably escaped scurvy because i for some strange reason i developed a liking for baked tomatoes ah usually with bacon and mushrooms and an omelette. So I, I would eat tomatoes by baking them. And also I was possibly saved from scurvy by the great baked bean ah, okay. in tomato sauce. Yes. And then this time when vegetables were not in my diet came to an end when I got into a relationship and then got married. Here's somebody... They eat completely different things to me. So initially, when you're in that honeymoon period of a relationship, it's like, yes, I'll eat whatever's put in front of me. And that was my gateway into suddenly discovering that there is more to vegetables than just sprouts, carrots, cauliflower, broccoli, <laughs> spinach. There is a wealth of other ones. And there's a multitude of ways that you can prepare them that, A, keep their taste, flavor, texture the lot and you don't have to present them in a way where you've absolutely rendered them pointless yeah i think my path was slightly different from from that point um, once i left the house and got out on my own and had my first place i started to realize how much food cost mm -hmm. and i was a student at the time i was going to college and i didn't have a lot of money which i'm sure a lot of people can can uh relate to and so I like salads. I, I, I Lettuce was cheap at the time, and you could buy mushrooms and, and just whatever stuff you put on salads and a thing of salad dressing, and that could feed me for several days. Um, and so I would do things like that, and I would also eat a lot of uh, – I would make fried rice, which you would you know chop up the veggies, and I had a little wok you could put on your stove and do stuff like that. So it was basically cheap food just to keep me going. I never really did the ramen thing, which is kind of funny. A lot of people do the ramen 
and I didn't do that so much, but I, you know, a lot of starches and a lot of like, I would just have butter noodles with, or egg noodles with butter on them. I call them butter noodles. And that, that's what I would eat. That would be a whole meal. Literally boil up egg noodles, slap a pat of butter on them as the sauce. And that, that was what I, it, it's what I could afford, you know, once the the next step comes later of once I had some money and could afford to eat better, then I started branching out slowly on my own. Um, and maybe, you know, cause I, once I started traveling for work, I would eat at a lot of restaurants and that would expose me to many, many things that I had never been exposed to. And that's how I discovered a lot of things, but re- remind us at the end, you should list off some of the things that you normally eat because like the beets, I suspect there might be a lot of things that you are surprised. You would be surprised. I've never tried. Okay. I think for a lot of people, when you start living with someone else, there is a good opportunity to be introduced to a whole range of cuisine that you might not previously have experienced. And most certainly that was my epiphany with vegetables. Just looking for produce that, is not indigenous to the UK has greatly improved things. The fact that British supermarkets over the last decade or so have started stocking all sorts of vegetables from all around the world. Some of them really obscure things that you you literally think, well, what the heck is that? And you're standing there in the supermarket with your phone out, Googling it. And the supermarket has also been really good about having little plaques and notices next to certain displays saying this is such and such it's traditionally and it gives you little clues about how you should prepare and serve it and and it's amazing that i look at what my diet is now and it's like i like sweet potato and butternut squash and they were completely absent not only from my diet, but in the UK, in mainstream supermarkets in the 70s, you would have struggled to have found those. Like, yeah, you would have found them in um, certain ethnic areas and stuff like that, but you would not have found those in mainstream supermarkets. I absolutely love things, well, squashes of most kind. I think it's a very versatile vegetable. It has a very interesting flavor. And also, it's the fact that you can do so much with it. I think the, the main issue is to when you think of the diverse way you can cook and prepare meat you can equally do the same with vegetable mm-hmm. can't you absolutely you don't have to say there's a vegetable you chop it up cover it in water and boil the bollocks off it you can bake it you can saute it you can steam st- steam yes that was a and big indeed, one for me steaming don't even have to buy a fancy steamer. You can do some clever steaming techniques in a microwave, can't you? Yep. Yeah. And certainly with steaming, you can maintain the texture of vegetables. Rather than having something that's soft and squidgy, you can have something that's still quite robust, firm. You can actually feel the fibers in it or the structure of it. And certainly you prefer, I mean, ironically enough, Although I had that bad experience with spinach, I love now fresh spinach as long as it's fresh, cooked in the right way. And this is a bit, it was a bit naughty, serve it with a little bit of cream. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So, yeah, and I don't want to derail your, your train of thought, but steaming for me, I, I bought a steamer. Right. Okay, good. For early on. And that is what introduced me to the actual taste of the vegetables. 
because we had done exactly what you said. We always, you know, threw a bunch of peas and carrots and, you know, succotash mix or whatever and, and boiled it up and then put whatever butter and whatever you put on them, right? So I don't think I was ever getting, I mean, you know, a canned green bean tastes substantially different from a fresh green bean, right? I mean, I'm, I know yes. I'm not lying there. I've had them. Have you ever had canned asparagus? Oh, it's horrible compared to fresh asparagus. So anyway, so so I, I, I got tired of salad. Salad was something you didn't have to cook, right? And I didn't know how to yeah. cook. To, to be honest, at that age. And so I had kind of gotten tired of the salad things after a few years and had run out of ideas. And so I got the steamer and I started getting, I started with broccoli and then I discovered cauliflower and then I discovered squash you can steam and all the different things. And I liked it enough. I didn't have to put a lot on it. I, I, in fact, broccoli to this day, I could just eat broccoli even raw now and mm-hmm. enjoy it. I, I actually have re- always liked broccoli. So I, I learned through the steamer of all things to enjoy the vegetables for what they actually taste like or close enough to what they taste like, not for how you're preparing them or what you're putting on them. And that was probably the biggest eye opener I, I have as far as food. Obviously, buying fresh vegetables is beneficial to eat something as soon as possible, as soon as it's available for you to eat i think is the best way for getting the most nutritional benefit out of it and obviously enjoying its flavor its subtlety in the uk it's a small country i mean yeah we've got 60 million people living here but it is a relatively small country so it's not a problem for people to get access to fresh vegetables logistically so financially so that's a slightly different issue but fresh vegetables are available in most supermarkets etc i found as i said earlier that um, supermarkets tend to stock so many interesting varieties now there's so much to to try go on supermarket and you buy yourself a pack of peppers Mm -hmm. red green yellow peppers and stuff i consider those now a useful addition to pretty much any meal yeah Mix them in with rice, mix them in with other vegetables, mix them in with meat that you're cooking in a broth or or um, some other sort of palaf or some sort of stir fry that you're doing. To me now, vegetables no longer have to be a separate extra. It's just like something to throw in with something else. It's sort of a complete turnabout of where I used to be but that that's the way it seems to go I used to have the mindset that oh how can you make vegetables interesting uh put cheese on them and then it would be we'll keep the cheese and throw away the vegetables I now have the opinion that I've always got either in the ice box or I'll go and get it as I need it just components that you can quickly throw together a quick stir fry to get your bean shoots get some peppers, pretty much get any other vegetable because you just chop it up to a size where it's as you like it. You throw that into a stir fry. Cauliflower and broccoli goes fine in the stir fry, doesn't it? Yeah, it's funny because I have gotten to the point in the past, I'd say, 10 years where meat is much less a part of my diet. It was always like it was unquestionable to me if I was having dinner or supper, I was going to have some kind of meat. And now I have a lot of vegetarian meals, not vegetarian. They're just, they're just, they are vegetarian. It's not because I am, you know what I'm saying? 
Like I can easily do a stir fry without any kind of meat and be perfectly happy. Or a salad with, you know, sometimes like I like to put chopped, uh, like dice some chicken up and stick in a salad, but I don't have to do that. Yeah. Now you have to get your protein somehow. And, you know, eggs is a big part of my diet and beans is a way, and there's other ways to get protein, but I'm, it's just, what I have found is that the more I'm trending away from meat and towards the vegetables and, and the fruits to a lesser extent, I think the healthier I am, um, not to say that meat's horrible, but it's just, it's funny how much less of a part of my life it is as time goes on. I I think that's good. A, for a health point of view, I also think it's good for a reality check because I, I wouldn't be surprised as the years advance, I think meat's going to become increasingly more expensive because of the fact that it's it's so uneconomical to produce environmental aspects etc i don't think meat's going to go away but i can certainly see meat being relegated in the long run to more of an an addition to a meal rather than the mainstay of the meal yeah yeah now, now as far as fruits and vegetables go my my other eye opener and probably most people laugh at this and maybe even you will is I, it took me a long time to learn and, and i've known this for a long time now but the difference between what is available in the grocery store, which in America, it's kind of the same fruits and vegetables are available seemingly year round, mm-hmm. the, the same core group, and what's actually in season. <laughs> and I, I have found the older I've gotten, part of it's because I got into gardening, which is a whole other podcast we should do at some point because I love gardening. But, but that experience taught me that just because I'm finding lemons in the grocery store in the middle of summer – doesn't necessarily mean that those lemons were picked in the middle of summer. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, they, they, you know, like apples last for months and months and months and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm finding that I, there's actually lists you can get on the internet of what's in season for each month. And I don't only shop those things, but I tend to shop those things more and more simply because it tastes better. Usually like, I don't know if you've ever had strawberries in season, and yes. then you've had strawberries five months after the season. They are completely different tasting strawberries, in my opinion. Ah, well, seasons to a degree have now sort of vanished because because of where the UK is situated. We have strawberries all year round. A, because you can just force grow them in polytunnels. Right. Or B, you guess are getting them imported from Spain. So I was going to move on to this subject about seasons. Very much in the 70s, there was still this clear distinction of seasonal foods. Certain fruit would manifest itself in summer, go away at certain other times. Other fruits would appear in autumn. Nuts, nuts very much were seasonal for the practical reasons of the life cycle of the nut. And all of that then pretty much went out the windows in the late 80s, 90s, when we could we, we worked out how to force grow stuff and how to just import it cheaply. It's true, but, but here, okay, I'll use tomatoes as a great example, okay? If I buy a tomato from my grocery store in the summer, it won't be as good as a tomato I grew in my garden, but it will be better than a tomato I buy in the grocery store in the winter. Mm-hmm. Because the winter ones are the hothouse ones. and if you've ever had, you know, there's a difference between the ones that were grown outside and the ones that were forced in the wrong season. They, they just, 
they they do taste differently to me. They have a different mm-hmm. texture to them. And they're they're still tomatoes. As a matter of fact, you can get Roma tomatoes here year round. Every day of the year I can buy Roma tomatoes. You know, paste tomatoes, right? Yes. And and, and use but I like now here, because I live in a hot climate, they might still taste pretty good because they're probably coming from around where I live. But pretty soon they're not going to because they're no longer in season here. And they're going to be getting them from Mexico and some other areas. And I, they do not taste anywhere close. They're, matter of fact, they almost taste like cardboard. But they're the same thing. Although I mentioned earlier I did have a prejudice against vegetables as a child particularly green ones <laughs> and i still do to this day have a although i will try them and i will eat certain vegetables i'm still slightly um skeptical of green vegetables mainly because um i find that the taste sometimes can be very strong i mean there are a, a dozen different varieties of cabbage in the uk mm-hmm. i tend to prefer the lighter colored ones the 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 greener ones, particularly the greener cabbages, with the far more crinkly leaves, higher iron content, I find their flavours a little bit overwhelming. However, although I grew up at a time when I developed a prejudice against vegetables, particularly green ones, oddly enough, I didn't develop any prejudice against the various different species of beans. <laughs> now, for some reason, my father has always been a big advocate of making soups. And he often bolstered those with a great deal of beans. And I was introduced to a whole variety of kidney beans, pinto beans, chickpeas, lentils, split peas, things that you can make soups and brothers out of. And I've always had a great liking for them because I think that they have a great deal of flavor in themselves. Mm -hmm. And also they're a great additive to other meals. Like, Like you could get a very thick pulse of beans once you've prepared them and then add meat to them and maybe some other vegetables and stuff, and you've got a very, very interesting meal. Are the beans a big part of your life, or is that a part of your diet that you've you, you've not explored? Up until very recently, I would say beans are a, a fairly big part of my life. Recently, mm-hmm. as you know, I've been doing something different, which we're going to talk about in the future, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little out there, but... Um, yeah, when I think of beans, by the way, you know, you're talking about lentils and these other things. I kind of tend more to think about green beans. Oh, okay. Um, or something like that, uh, or, or even peas, you know. Munch, too. Um, those types of things. Um, when I think beans, for, for, for whatever reason, I think baked beans. Which is, I believe, which a is just a form of beans. Bean. But yeah, yeah. It, it's now, now I, having said that, in the past maybe year, I have gotten into making bean soups in my slow cooker. Uh, you get a ham hock and throw in whatever kind of beans and um, some water and let it cook for eight hours. And it just pick the meat off the ham hock and leave it in and pitch the bone. And you're good to go for you can freeze that crap for months. <laughs> yeah. And it's very good. It's very tasty, very good for you and extremely cheap. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, totally with you on that. That's that's actually what I had a great deal of in my youth. My father was a great one for making bacon and bean soup, but it wasn't really a soup. It was really thick and gloopy yeah. and very, very nice. Oh, and baked beans, by the way, my correction, it's haricot beans, which are uh, in baked beans. I see. And you could do a podcast on that. Yeah. Because huge variations in, in baked beans – 
the the, the sauce that goes with it, the thickness, the, the size, the quality of the beans. You go different places, you'll get baked beans in all different shapes and forms, but it's all good in my book. Yeah, well, I've been, you know, I, so I started making these bean soups and I, I made what's called a seven bean mix, which I just bought mm-hmm. the, it was pre, pre-done. And then I, I, I used great northern beans in one and I've used kidney beans in, in one. And it, pretty much what I've discovered is if you want to make bean soup, although there's, I, I think, traditionally be a navy bean or a, you know, the white beans. Yeah. Um, in, in what you would call in America a bean soup, which is uh, the with the ham and it's kind of lighter. Um Pretty much any bean, like we can just buy them in a bag by the pound, or you can go to the bulk places and just buy as much as you want. And I don't think I have gone wrong using, although chickpeas might be the one I wouldn't use in a bean soup, because I do think that that's, that's, I make hummus out of those. Yes. Hummus is something that I'm new to in the past few years. And I actually, although there are uh, Trader Joe's, especially there's some hummuses that I like, I make it from scratch. Cool. And uh, I, that that's actually turned around my eating because instead of snacking on chocolate or chips or whatever, when I get hungry now and I want a snack, what I tend to do is I always have a big thing of hummus that I made and I use the, we have the baby carrots here mm-hmm. and you're cut up some, or just any kind of vegetable you want, whatever's good for a dip, right? And, yep. and and I use those, and that sates my hunger for a snack, and I think it's much, much healthier than uh, chips. And you've also got control over what oil you use. Yeah, olive oil, and, and uh, I buy very specific, very good olive oil, by the way, um, and, and those types of things. And I can control how much salt goes in it and what the, the how much cumin and you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I have complete control over it. So I, I, and in my fact, I take it to family functions. I'm kind of the, whenever we, we do for Christmas, we do a soups at Christmas, which might be kind of weird, but everybody who comes in, uh, to, to my families for Christmas, everybody who arrives brings a different kind of soup. So we'll have four or five or six soups. But I'm always the guy that makes the veg tray, <laughs> the the crudité, if you want to call it. And I, I end up making my own hummus, and the family just loves it, so it must be okay. Anyway, I digress. We'll have the hummus episode in the future. Let's move now on to fruit. Yes. Now, this one comes as a surprise to anyone listening. My experiences with vegetables, well, fruit, it was virtually a parallel experience. Yeah. <laughs> You're living in a time when fruits are very, very seasonal. All the various different berries only manifested themselves at certain times of the year. Apples, pears, very readily accessible. If you were going to have fruit, it was usually in a pie or something of that ilk, or sometimes a fruit would be bisected, hollowed out and baked and maybe had raisins and sultanas put in it. That is actually quite a sophisticated way with quite subtle flavours. You give that to a child, child just wants ice cream. Yeah. So so I was introduced to certain things as a child that I didn't like or I didn't really have a sophisticated enough palate. Now, you get a decent apple, bisect it now, hollow it out, put some raisins, apples, put some cinnamon spice on it, slowly bake that in an oven over a couple of hours or whatever an appropriate period of time, you get something very delicate and nice, but that's wasted on children. Yeah. Most things are. I say tasing them all. But that's a separate issue. Wow. Um, I am still, to this day, sceptical about fruit. 
for a slightly different set of reasons. A, because bees poo on them. The other reason being a lot of fruits, to get the best out of them, you need to prepare them. And some fruits can be incredibly labor intensive. (laughs) I'll give you an example. You go to the supermarket and you buy yourself a humble pear. You take the pear home and you go, this pear is not ripe. I shall put it on this shelf where it can have some sunlight and slowly ripen. You then go to bed. And at three o'clock in the morning, there is a window of opportunity when that pear is now ripe and palatable, which you miss. And then you return to it when it is just turned to the black death. That annoys me. The pomegranate, a very delicate fruit with a very subtle flavor. But you have to be quincy. You have to perform a fucking autopsy on this bastard thing to get the little individual pomegranate cells, whatever the technical term is, out. The coconut, a very wonderful nut with a nice flavor. But you need... Norm Abrams in a new Yankee workshop. You need those sort of tools to get yourself into it, and then you've got to scoop the flesh out of the actual shell. Do, do you see my point, Brian? I'm being slightly sarcastic here, but there is an element of hard work associated with the preparation of certain things. I, I do see your point. I'm, I'm actually still hung up on something you said about two minutes ago about bees pooping on the fruit being your hang-up <laughs> when you're perfectly okay with vegetables coming out of the, the earthworm insect infested ground full of rotting matter which is what soil is that's all right it's a child's logic i i I know i'm still i'm I'm just kind of that's been going through my mind ever since (laughs) yes fruit fruits are well not apples but you know like I, i citrus fruit yeah those types of things yes they very definitely have a a short peak life i think Mm-hmm. And unless you find ways to preserve them, which there are plenty of ways to preserve all different kinds of fruits, um, they, they can be a chore. But I, I have to admit, having a a good fresh fruit as a snack, um, and, and fruits tend to be sugary by nature, most of them, not all of them, but, but many of them, uh, is very, very satisfying or can be. In, indeed. I'm sure this possibly might be a similar sentiment therefore the introduction to fruits as a child apart from the ones that you got in supermarkets that were fresh the other alternative was was tin fruit and Mm -hmm. tin fruit from a child's perspective was often more welcome because it was usually in some sort of very sugary syrup yes and hence that's the appeal I'm sure for the first couple of decades of my life, I didn't have a clue what a peach tastes like because 90% of that can was just like liquid sugar. Yep. Yeah. I I like, I like grapefruits, but I do have to admit if you cut a grapefruit in half and they make grapefruit spoons, have you ever seen those? Oh yes. (laughs) You know, and and it takes you like, you know, for what I get out of eating that grapefruit, it's, it's almost not worth the time it takes to get it out of there in my opinion. So that's why I don't eat a lot of grapefruit. But but I was turned on to citrus by living in Florida. I moved to Florida and I bought a house that had many a variety of citrus trees in the yard and an avocado tree even, which mm-hmm. was really cool. And I was introduced to uh, tangelos or tangelos, but miniola specifically. I had two of those trees. And if you have never had one of those, oh my God, go out and buy one as soon as they're in season because... It's like the best tasting orange, the juiciest thing you will ever have in your life. And 
that opened my eyes to what I, I was used to navel oranges as a child, which are just whatever. They're like the generic. It's like red delicious apples, right? Yes. Navel oranges to oranges, what red delicious is to apples. Well, having these tangelos and having a lime tree and and a key lime tree, I had and a, I had a pink grapefruit tree. That kind of opened my eyes to there can be better than what you're getting in the store, and there certainly are. There's some great citrus out there. Now, this is the thing that I love about the modern supermarket. We now live in a world of prepared fruit and veg, mm -hmm. which some people really look down their nose at. And I'm sorry, I think that that's wrong. If buying a prepared fruit or veg is your stepping stone into trying it, enjoying it, and now and then making it a regular part of your diet, I actually applaud that. I think that's a good thing. I like the convenience of vegetables that have already been peeled and cut up, just required to be cooked. I particularly like prepared fruit because of that factor that so many fruit are quite difficult for you to actually sort out. And the fact that you can go to a supermarket and you can get yourself some pomegranate that's been prepared, or you can get some coconut that's already been you know liberated from the actual shell etc i particularly like mango mm -hmm. i like mango i like pineapple for some reason the supermarkets sometimes like to bundle those two together so you can get pineapple and mango chunks together in a punnet again you have to keep an eye on them because both those fruits can be quite challenging to consume when they're um, unripe mm -hmm. and then the moment they are ripe you leave it too long and they, they do become a little bit sloppy and you, and you lose some of it. But um, I'm a big advocate of the fact that prepared, I mean, until recently, I didn't have a clue what to do with a passion fruit or a, or, or a kiwi fruit. How, what is the best way to actually enjoy those? And then by going to a supermarket where they actually have these fruit already sliced, cleaned up, presented in the right way sometimes again with little serving suggestions actually written on the packaging i applaud that i think that is a good approach i've never had passion fruit i i've, I've only had it as a, i know what it tastes like because i've had tea mm -hmm. with i was like what is this flavor and i asked the the waiter and it was passion fruit you know mm -hmm. you know how every place has a different at least here in america you order iced tea and for some reason every restaurant in the past few years has a different fruit infusion in them i would like to see a policy pursued where people are encouraged to try fruit and vegetable um i appreciate that that's a fine line to pursue because our good old Jamie Oliver has tried that on both sides of the Atlantic and come a cropper on both times. People can be a resistant to change sometimes, <laughs> but nine times out of 10, I usually hear about people and I include myself in that group who've been somewhat skeptical or even downright prejudiced against something. And then under the right circumstances, if you can present it to them in a way for them to try, it can be quite an eye-opening experience for them. And obviously, it's common sense. If you can make fresh fruit and veg a mainstay of most people's diet, that's going to be beneficial for the nation's health. Yeah, I just wonder if it's a pushback to everybody's childhood because, you know, there's always something better to eat than the vegetables on the plate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and I think the parents, like my parents, made such a big thing out of it that I kind of just rebelled against that. It wasn't that I didn't like 
the vegetables necessarily. It was just that they kept pushing me and pushing me mm-hmm. and pushing me. And, and plus they probably weren't, like I said, a lot of ours was canned stuff, which doesn't taste as good. Indeed. Although I would say that modern day freezing and canning technology sure. has advanced a lot. and Especially freezing. Yes, definitely. You can now get good stuff where I do think in the 70s it was the bits that were a bit left but, over okay, on the so, floor. But, but here, like I hated tomatoes when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I would not eat tomatoes. Now, I would have, you know, spaghetti sauce, which has tomatoes and things like that. But if I would never eat a fresh tomato, if I if they came on a sandwich, I would take them off. I hated tomato. Do you know what my favorite thing is now? Tomatoes. There you go. the The difference is I started growing tomatoes in my garden because the, even buying the fresh tomatoes at the grocery store, they don't taste that good. Don't fool yourself. It, it's it's a tomato, but it's not great. But the f- ones that I grew are it's almost like a different food item it, it was it's they're heavenly it's the only way i can describe them and now one of my favorite things to do and i will have it as a meal is slice up a tomato and maybe put a little salt on it and just eat it just like that well i suppose we should wrap up this part of the show now food it's a fascinating subject something i'm sure we could discuss for hours i would like to end on this point though i found during my career i've worked in some very interesting positions where i've met people from all around the globe and the quickest and easiest way i found to get beyond all those social difficulties or perceived social difficulties is just to sit down and to have a meal with someone to break bread and there's nothing nicer than to try some some new food and the person that's cooked it says oh this is a traditional meal in in my country or my culture or this is how i was told by my grandmother or grandfather or whatever and then you have a little bit of a chat about it and then you try something you think good god that's absolutely gorgeous and then you compliment them about it and then you say afterwards i'd really like to know how to do that and you share that information. Meals bring people together in a yep. wonderful way. Bollocks to the United Nations. I just say, get everyone around the big dinner table. I have to say, when I was out in, in your neck of the woods a couple of years ago, my sister was getting married. Uh, mm-hmm. We went out of our way to eat at pubs as much as we could. And we would eat things that we would normally never order. Like I didn't even like rocket. They had rocket salad and I yes. didn't know what Rocco was. We had to ask. I know probably a lot of people are laughing right now, but it just didn't know. And so, and then my, uh, uh, well, now he's my brother-in-law, but his family uh, had us over, very nice people. And they made a bunch of the traditional British dishes like shepherd's pie and those types of things. Mm-hmm. And they actually had them labeled so we knew what they were. Isn't that cute? <laughs> yes. And, and then they they told us, you know what was in them and how to cook them and it was just they were just they went out of their way to to share that part of their culture with us and that's one of my favorite memories of that trip other than the wedding itself was so nice how how they tried to embrace us into their family through food So, there you have it. What is possibly the last word 
on the subject of bacon and eggs and fruit and veg, all courtesy of Contains Moderate Peril, the podcast that keeps giving. We'll be back next month with our traditional seasonally themed show. Until then, thanks once again for listening. You've been listening to Contains Moderate Peril. For more information, visit ContainsModeratePeril.com and follow us on Twitter at Moderate Peril.